You're listening to The Masters with Tiffany and Company on Monocle 24. Come with us as we meet pioneers from the fields of design, art, fashion, sport, music and more. Diverse fields, a range of talents. What unites all these trailblazers is a certain mastery, a mastery of craftsmanship, of technique, of materials, of innovation to drive what they do. We'll hear about their life and their work and hopefully understand just a little bit more about how those notions have shaped them. Maybe too, we'll divine a sense of the philosophy that's brought them here and might just inspire us in however small a way to follow in their storied footsteps. So far in this series, we've heard from some of the world's leading visual artists, photographer and Apartmento magazine co-founder Nacho Alegre, and most recently, Paris-based design legend Ronan Borilek. Today we're sitting down with a designer of a different sort. Sam Bompas is one half of Bompas and Parr, a pioneering pair working at the cutting edge of food, drink and experience design. Since they first wobbled onto the London scene over a decade ago with their incredible architectural jellies, that's jello to our US listeners, they've pushed the boundaries of what's possible in dining and hospitality. Sam Bompas welcomes Monocle's Augustin Machilari to Bompas and Pa's London studio to explain how the duo work to colonise imaginations. I'm Sam Bompas of Bompas and Pa. We call ourselves experienced designers, but over the years we've been called many things, from jelly mongers when we're focusing exclusively on jelly, to architectural foodsmiths when we're bringing a sort of design sensibility to the realm of food and drink, to artists when we've been in art galleries, to marketeers when we've been helping people understand or find a new way to look at a product. To be honest, we don't really care what we're called as long as we give you a remarkable experience. When one speaks to industrial designers, there's often this real kind of, I feel like they're often led by this desire to solve problems, right? They've seen something that doesn't work as well as they would like it to work. And they are like, and they think, right, well, I'm going to make this work somehow more successfully or, or in a way that I consider to be more successfully. When you're designing experience, I suppose you're led by imagination, ultimately. Coca-Cola talks about their market share by the amount of space that they fill in the world's collective stomach. We like to think about you know, our ideas being f- effective if they fill up more space in people's brains and imaginations. We're really designing experiences for people's leisure hours, their discretionary time, and they could be doing anything on the planet. They could be watching football, talking about mermaids, sunbathing, uh, going kayaking, whatever people like to do in their spare time. And instead, we'll ask them to come and spend their time, which they probably don't have a lot of that's spare, and also some money doing something that we've curated. So by and large, we try and make it very delightful. We tend to focus on more joyful experiences. If you've had a <laughs> if you've had a food and drink experience that revels in the darker side of humanity, you probably haven't delighted in it. Unlike whereas a, a, a cinematic or a theatrical experience or even artistic experience that talks about darkness might be quite intriguing, might get you to know yourself more, might get you to reflect on your ethics. In food and drink, it sounds like food poisoning. Let's talk about that object of delight. How do you design that? Where's your starting point? And how, how, what kind of stress tests do you need to apply to an idea to know that it's kind of sufficiently delightful? So our source of inspiration are pretty diverse. We've got a very, very extensive culinary library here. 
a lot of research in this sort of library. It's not only focused on food, but on lots of other disciplines. So there are shelves on chemistry, magical herbs, engineering, architecture, world fairs of yesteryear. And we like to take those knowledges and bring them into the realm of food and drink, hopefully being able to create something new. We also, when we discovered those realms of creativity, we often go and find experts within them to collaborate with. And that could be a historian of fireworks. It could be a microbiologist. It could be an experimental psychologist or criminologist trying to discover new things that haven't been explored as yet. You've drawn sort of inevitable comparisons to Willy Wonka uh, from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Do you find inspiration in fiction? I think if you're interested in creative practice, you quickly realise that anything new has to be a fiction before it can be reality. So a lot of things that are happening now with the internet or space travel have all been envisaged at some point over the last century in fiction before they become reality. I found out that Intel actually employs someone full-time to work with the engineers, write science fiction, and then try and make it. Because they sit down and say, well, look, you're the engineers from Intel. If you can't make it, who can? So yes, we do we do find inspiration in, in fiction. I think one book that's that's been really inspirational for us has been Arable Against Nature by Weissman. Um, we actually sat beneath a six-meter high cocktail organ that we made for Johnny Walker that was inspired directly by that book. And in it, the protagonist sits down at piano, a keyboard, and he makes himself cocktails by playing different melodies. And, and in particular, the melodies remind him of a place, although being transported to the place through drinking the drink. Reading that sounded magical. It sounded like something should exist in the world. It also sounded very crude, because you know that ultimately, if you make that today, you're just draining liquids controlled by solenoid valves effectively into a gutter, you know, to the pool in a glass with some rubbish ice at the end of it. You realise that most decent barmen could probably make you a better balanced drink than that. It's when we realised that we could take that inspiration from literature, but then use, this is in 2014, what was then really cutting-edge cross-modal science with Professor Charles Spence at Oxford University, to help people find within a single glass lots of different flavours through transporting your sense of taste, through manipulating both vision and sound, that this, as a consequence, was born. Um, so, so the organ also has hidden cocktail bars. It's got a pipe in there somewhere filled with litres of very, very good whiskey. And it can change your perception of taste as well, by about as much as 20% as it plays. You've recently brought out a cocktail book. How important is it to you that you are making experiences that people can recreate to a greater or lesser extent at home? And do you think that that should be a kind of underlying aim of your practice? Or do you think that it's actually fine to say, here's a spectacle that we we can make and here's an element of it that you can maybe recreate? I think the structure of the studio and the reason we have the studio is to enable us to, well... Not effortlessly, but in a way that won't totally break you, make quite create quite complex experiences, you know, which necessitates having a trained team at the moment. We've got 21 people. They spend all their time making stuff. And they've got quite a broad skill set as well. So you know, on one side, you've got architects. On the other side, you've got chefs. And then you've got all sorts of disciplines in between that, making up the full gambit of um, the studio. That said, when people say, well, how do you come up with all these 
wonderful and remarkable ideas. I don't actually think they're terrifically difficult to arrive at. I think there's sorts of things that most people come at if they're sat having a cup of tea with a friend or in the pub with friends. The only difference is we then spend six months a year striving to make it happen, calling around ridiculous numbers of people who we think we could partner with, being rejected by most of them to find something that that is possible. And then in the, over the course of that process, stumbling upon new things. He talks about Willy Wonka earlier. So we made the world's first flavor-changing chewing gum. It was really exciting at the time. People got very, very, you know, just thrilled by it. Like, you know, it was something that, that had been fictional in China, the chocolate factory. It was now, now, now reality. In actual fact, we, I mean, we discovered that totally by chance because we we're making an artisanal chewing gum factory. We we're trying to track down 200 different flavorings that you could combine together to make over 40,000 different flavorings of chewing gum. In the course of doing so, we spoke to all the major flavor houses. Some of them had just started micro-encapsulating flavorings. And so micro-encapsulating means you enrobe the flavor in like a fat that can either shear or heat release the flavor. So it means you get sequential releases of flavor within the same state, aka flavor-changing chewing gum. But it's only because we started on that process to see about how many different flavors of chewing gum we could make or anyone could make if they came along to the the project that we discovered this thing that was that was new and interesting. Have you ever done anything with jewellery? Yeah, I've done a number of different jewellery projects. So behind me you can see a drinking chalice that we commissioned, which is made with a human skull. And we worked with two goldsmiths to set a cup in the skull and set it on an elaborate stem. It's quite remarkable. It's also, I guess, our retirement fund because there was a... There was a uh, an investment bank that asked us to curate a workshop on toasting and like do, basically doing your doing your best man or um, you know best woman speech. So it culminated with everyone, the 40 people sat around the table donning white gloves and then passing this drinking chalice made out of a human skull between themselves. And everyone thought it was great, they're all taking photos. Suddenly someone latched on, said, look, no one's leaving the room until any of those photos are deleted. Because I thought 40, 40 investment bankers drinking for the human skull would be the picture that everyone believed of everything went on behind closed doors. Luckily, I've still got one of those photos hidden on my camera. How important is craftsmanship and technique to what you do? We work primarily with food and drink. And if you want to be effective and successful in it, you have to put a lot of love into it. I mean, you have to really care. There has to be a spirit of generosity. And craftsmanship really comes to the fore with that. And I think the essence of innovation for us is when you see something that is original and new, it's creative, but also has a purpose. So it's not just there for novelty. There's perhaps a business case that sits behind it as well. Sam Bompers talking to Monocle's Augustin Machilari. And you can find out more about Tiffany & Company's men's collection by heading to tiffany.com and searching men's jewellery. In the episodes ahead, we'll be meeting more inspirational innovators across fields like design, art, music and more to find out how they've mastered their craft to become industry trailblazers. Next week, we'll be speaking to Jonathan Heffler. But that's all for today's edition. Thanks to our production team here in London. I'm Tom Edwards. This is The Masters with Tiffany & Company on Monocle 24. Thank you for listening.